doing that for you folks who are guests with us today for over the last year now. We've been studying the book of Revelation last week. We, we just got started in chapter 12, so why don't we all right now take our Bibles, turn to the last book of the Bible, and to the 12th chapter. And one of the key things you want to note about this, this 12th chapter is that in this chapter we begin our third tour through the tribulation period. Now make sure that you hear that. We have begun, as we came to chapter 12 last Sunday, we've begun our third tour through the tribulation period. From Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 19, there are four accounts of the tribulation period showing you this period of seven years from four different perspectives. Now, let me, just, let me just clear off a little space here because every week we realize that we have people who are, who are coming into this room who are not familiar with a lot of the terminology of the Bible and the things that we've, as I've already said, been spending over a year to be discussing and learning, and so we, we understand that. And when we throw out words like the tribulation period, we understand that there's some of you folks... And, and you don't really fully under, understand exactly what we're talking about there. So let me take just a minute to, to dial you in to some key things that you need to understand. And, and maybe for some of you folks who are newer to the Bible, you know what? If you'll listen diligently in about the next five minutes, you could learn more about the Bible than you've learned in your entire life previous to this time. I'm going to give you just one major, quick overview of the Bible. So let's all of us listen very, very carefully. When God visited this planet in the person of Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what he did, it was God in human flesh coming to this planet in a body of a person that we call Jesus Christ. When he came to this earth, he came in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that were given to the nation of Israel, that he would come to this planet and he would be their Messiah, listen, to establish a literal physical, governmental kingdom on this earth where he, as their king, from the capital of Jerusalem, would rule over all the Gentile nations of the world. Now listen, that was what the Old Testament had prophesied of him. Now by the time Jesus actually came to this planet, the nation of Israel was under the iron fist of the Roman government and to be just quite honest about it, the Jews loathed it. They hated it. So here comes Jesus on the scene, and they begin to see that he is actually fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies concerning their Messiah. And so here are the Jews. Here is Israel. And man, they are getting extremely excited about Jesus coming. Now, now listen, they're all excited about Jesus coming to deliver them from the bondage of the Romans. They're stoked about this. He's going to bring us out of this domination that these Romans have over us. But you see, what Israel forgot is that they were under the bondage of something that was far more devastating than the Romans. They were under the bondage of their sin. And they forgot that in order for the Messiah to have any citizens in this kingdom that he was coming to establish on this planet, their conquering king had to first 
humble himself and be their redeeming Messiah who would come and suffer and bleed and be tormented and die on a cross. And you see, that's why the scripture says, He came unto His own, but His own, what? Received Him not. You see, they wanted a political Messiah who would get Him out of the domination of the Romans. But first, He had to come and show His love to them and die on the cross so that He could have citizens in this kingdom so that they could be born again but he came unto his own and they rejected him because they could not see how their political messiah that's going to rule over the nations of the world is going to have this roman government in their eyes beat him and, and crucify him and so they missed him and at that point in the, in the bible what you see happen is that god enters into a a parenthesis of time where he is establishing on this earth a different kind of kingdom it's not a, a physical kingdom what he would establish would be a, a spiritual kingdom where all of the people on this planet who would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ believing that what he was actually doing on the cross is he was dying for sin was fully capable of delivering them from the bondage of their sin and by calling upon his name they enter into his family they enter into a spiritual kingdom where he comes and just like that literal physical kingdom that he's going to establish he comes into us he sits on the throne of our life in a spiritual kingdom and he rules and reigns over us and what the Bible says and what it lays out for us is that this period of time that we're talking about where he is developing this spiritual kingdom this period of time is a time that we refer to as the church age. And this age that we're living in from the time of Jesus until its completion is a period of time that the Bible lays out for us that is approximately 2,000 years long. And I want you to listen very carefully. Right now, we are living in the very last days of the last days of this period of time. And you see, what God told us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is that the church age is going to end with an event that we call the rapture. And what that event is, is a time when Jesus Christ will come in the clouds and he will bodily remove every person on this planet who had yielded the kingdom of their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ and has allowed him to remove our sin and he rules and reigns in us. We've been born into his family. The Bible says that at that event, he will remove us bodily from the earth. And once that takes place, we enter into a seven-year period on this planet that is called the tribulation. Now, the first three and a half years are relatively peaceful as a person who is called the Antichrist comes on the scene and he is posing to be Christ himself on this planet. He deceives the world. He looks as if he is the promised Christ. But then the second half of the tribulation, the last three and a half years of that thing, he begins to show his real colors. He shows who he really is. And all hell literally breaks loose on this planet. 
But as it is, as all hell is breaking loose, what's beginning to happen, the Bible says, is Jesus will once again begin to deal with the nation of Israel preparing to return to this planet at the end of that seven years of tribulation to come to Jerusalem to take a throne to rule and to reign from that throne in Jerusalem over all the Gentile nations of the world just like the Old Testament prophesied concerning him and once he comes back to this planet he will rule and reign over the nations of the world for a period of a thousand years uh, an event that we call what the millennium okay that's a thousand years where Jesus Christ will rule and reign on this earth and as I said in Revelation chapter 6 through 19 what God does for us is he brings us through four different accounts of the same event the, the tribulation period seeing it from four different perspectives and of course the tribulation period culminates with the second coming of Christ to this planet where he'll set up that millennial kingdom and rule and reign for a thousand years and we saw last week that as we begin this third tour through the tribulation in chapter 12 chapter 12 breaks down into a very simple outline in verses 1 through 6 he shows us a great wonder in heaven and then in verses 7 through 17 he shows us a great war in heaven and as we started looking at verses 1 to 6 at this great wonder in heaven we, we saw that if we're really going to understand what this this passage is really saying we're going to have to spend some time identifying the characters that the passage talks about and that's letter a on your outline identifying the characters and we saw that first he, he shows us the wonder of a woman in heaven not wonder woman but a, a wonder in heaven who is a woman and we see this in verses one and two and we saw that though the catholics believe that this woman is none other than the virgin mary and the protestants and most baptist churches would tell you and believe that that she is the church what well, we saw last week by comparing scripture with scripture and looking at the five different things that this passage say must be true of this woman we found that the woman is and can only be what israel okay then the next part of this great wonder in heaven had to do with another of the main characters in the passage and he's introduced to us in verse 3 and that is a great red dragon verse 3 gives us several key identifying marks that we looked at in pretty great detail last week the fact that this great red dragon has seven heads ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads uh, some deep stuff there but we went into some, some pretty great detail on that last week saw what those things represented but if there was any doubt whatsoever as to the identity of this great red dragon then verse 9 dispels any doubt because it just flat out tells you look at it that the great dragon was cast out here he is that old serpent called the devil and Satan watch this now which deceiveth the whole world and I want you to just hang on that phrase for just a second he deceiveth the whole world and as I was preparing this week I, I found myself in somewhat of a, a little bit of a, a dilemma because my, my goal is to try to teach you the, the book of Revelation and 
I, I want to try to stick with what we've got here because I, I know that I have the, the propensity within me to be, you know, sometimes getting in and get so busy scraping bark off the trees that we lose the forest, you know, in, in this thing. And I don't, want to, I don't want to do that. But you know what? I hate for us to come to passages like this that open up windows for us in the Bible that we're in such a rush that we can't take the time to look through the window to see some things that it might take us another seven years to get back around to. So this morning, before we nail the identity of the third main character in the story, the, the child, what, what I want us to do is I want to talk a little, little further this morning in a much pr more practical way about identifying this dragon. N not so much in Revelation chapter 12, but now listen, identifying this dragon in our everyday lives. You see, it, it's real cool for us to come in here. And, yeah, we're, we're studying the book of Revelation and we got this, okay, the, the, the woman is Israel and of course the, the dragon is, is Satan and, you know, here goes the big fat head with all the knowledge and we're missing the fact that this dragon is blowing us away every stinking day of our life. So I don't want to miss this little window that we got here because I want you to understand something, folks. Listen, Satan does not want you to be able to identify him. His desire in your life is to remain unidentified. Now, now we saw last week, as we have on, on numerous occasions as we've been together for the last 15 years, that when God created him, he wasn't Satan at all. He was Lucifer. And according to Ezekiel 28, he was the most incredible creature that God ever created. He possessed the most power. He possessed the highest rank. He, he possessed the most beauty of any being that God ever created until finally, in his pride, he said this. He said, I will be like the Most High. And he set himself as God's adversary, as God's enemy. And this is what it was that caused him to, to be the devil and Satan. In fact, those terms even mean adversary, enemy. His pride is what caused him to become Satan in the first place. And I want you to listen now. I think a lot of you know this, but we, we really don't know this. Satan is absolutely bent on hating God, and he will do whatever he can possibly do to stop God's plan for the earth and for the universe and for your life. And he's, he, he's just the very opposite of everything that God is. And you see, that's why when he comes on the scene during the tribulation period, he comes as the anti-Christ. He's the opposite of everything that Christ is. But now I want you to listen. Satan has found through the centuries that he's far more effective in coming against God and his word and his plan by imitating it than he is by actually coming and just right in your face opposing it. Now, according to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, he does go throughout this world walking about, seeking whom he may devour as a roaring lion. But he's found that the greatest way to devour people is by posing to be Christ, by posing to be Christian, by posing to be spiritual rather than revealing himself as Satan 
and involving people in that which is satanic and demonic. Point being, he doesn't want you to be able to identify him. You see, he still wants to be like the Most High. And if he can pull you into his arena by making you think that you're in the arena of the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, nothing would make him any happier than that. He'd be as happy you being in his arena, thinking you're in the arena of Christ, as he would you being involved in a satanic cult. And so what's, what's so alarming about all of this? If this is the way that Satan actually operates, and this is what he's doing, the thing that is so dangerous, what Paul talked about in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, about the perilousness of these last days that we're living in, what's so perilous about these last days is that most Christians that are living in 1998 don't know where Satan is. They don't know where he's operating. And you find this because you hear Christians talking about and giving credit to Satan for things that he has absolutely nothing to do with. For example, you hear this absolutely all the time. You hear Christians talking about how, you know, they're just in this real, this battle, you know, with sin in their life. And, oh my goodness, you know, you hear them talking to another believer and they're talking about how they succumbed to temptation in their life and they'll tell this other believer about it and they'll say man I'll just I'll just tell you Satan has just been really working overtime on me you, you, you heard this oh he's just really been working overtime in my life man and, and I just got to tell you man I've been blowing it big time when the truth is folks James chapter 1 tells us that Satan didn't have one stinking thing in the world to do with your temptation James chapter 1 in verse 14 says listen Every man, count them, every man, every woman, in every situation is tempted, how? When he is drawn away of, say it with me, his own lust and enticed. But listen, you, you need to understand something about Satan. He has never one time in his life ever been in a bar. There's some places you're going to find that Satan just won't, won't go. He's never been in a bar. He's never been in a strip joint. He's never lured anybody into a motel room with a prostitute or with somebody else's husband or wife. He's never been in a casino in Vegas or in Atlantic City or anywhere else. You know what? Satan doesn't spend his time in those hell holes. He won't go there. And you know what? The reason he won't go there is he knows he doesn't have to. He knows that the lust of our own flesh and the lust of our own eyes and the pride of our own life is going to take us and just consume us when we're in those places. And so he doesn't go there. You know where the devil goes? He goes to church. He goes to church, folks. That's where he spends his time. That's where he invests his energies and his resources. He spends his time in the last place that you'd ever think to look for him. He spends his time in church, and he knows that he can get a much bigger following posing as Christ in churches as he can revealing himself for who he is in some kind of a cult thing over here. 
And we're living at a time when most Christians can't identify the working of Satan around them or in their own lives or where he's carrying out his agenda this morning in August of 1998. And the key reason that they can't find him is because, as we mentioned just briefly last week, most Christians on this planet right now can't even identify him in the Bible. And I mean, folks, it's, it's kind of like this, you know. If you and I are playing a game of hide-and-seek in the bookstore, you know, a little room back there, there's no closets or anything. If you can't find me as we're playing hide-and-seek in the bookstore, then chances are real good when we go out on our 60-acre hill back here covered with bush and we're going to start playing the game there, if you can't find me in the bookstore, I promise you, you'll never find me when we get out there. And folks, it's just like that with Satan. If we can't find him in the Bible, don't think for a minute that you're going to be able to recognize him in the world in 1998, much less in your life. So, so let's take a few minutes here to look through the window that Revelation 12 opens up to us to make sure that we can identify Satan in the Bible and through that learn some things about how to identify Satan and his working in our own lives and in the world around us. And let me, let me begin by reminding you of a, of a very key principle of Bible study that we talk about a, an awful lot around here. A lot of these things we have to repeat because we tend to forget. And also the fact that we're reaching people who are constantly coming in that, that don't know a lot of the, these things. But a key principle of, of Bible study that you want to never forget is that though all of the Word of God is written for you, and it's all profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, just like it says in 2 Timothy 3.16. It's all profitable, and it's all for you, but you need to understand something. Not all of the Bible was written to you. What you begin to see is part of the Bible is written to the Jews, part of the Bible is written to the Gentiles, and part of the Bible is written to the church. This is on your chart for those of you that are looking at me right now. Okay, it's written to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and to the church, and God even break, breaks those three groups out for you in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 32. But that's a key principle of Bible study you don't want to ever lose sight of. And something interesting is that there are three key chapters in the Bible that God gives us to help us to understand the person and working of Satan. And in each of these chapters, coincidentally enough, what it does is it shows us how Satan works with each of these three groups of people that we just identified. One of them, of course, is right here in Revelation chapter 12, where God is revealing to us how Satan operates, how he works with the Jews or, or with the nation of Israel. And as we'll see a little later on this morning, Lord willing, the specific context here in Revelation 12 is his operation during the tribulation period. But chapter 12 is how he works with the Jews. Another place is Job 41, where God reveals to us Satan's operation with the Gentiles or the Gentile nations. And then the third place is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where God shows us how Satan operates in coming against the church. And now listen, if you'll put those three chapters together, what you'll find is that God has given to us a perfect composite of Satan and everything, listen, everything that we need to know and understand about his person and his working. 
Now, if that's true, if that's what God has done for us, then listen, you can bet that Satan is going to do everything within his power to make sure that we miss it, right? Because remember, the key way that he works is by keeping himself unidentified in your life. So let's take a few minutes here to make sure we've got this thing down. Go to Job chapter 41. And we just spent a few minutes here last week talking about this incredible beast that's introduced to us in Job 41. This is a beast that seems to, to be very, very difficult for most of the people in Christianity today to identify. This is the beast referred to in Job chapter 41 and verse 1 as Leviathan. And we saw last week that though most commentators and the Bible scholars and theologians who were employed by the publishers of our, our Bibles to, you know, to write notes in our margin, though most of them think that Leviathan is either in a whale, a whirlpool, a crocodile, a hippopotamus, an elephant, or an unknown sea creature, in, in other words, take your pick because we don't have a clue, and what we saw last week is that if you'll just do what God tells us to do, over in the very simple passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it will employ the method that God said that he would use to reveal the scripture to us, which is by comparing things spiritual with things spiritual, that it's, it's really no problem. In other words, what God is saying is if you'll just take words, if you'll just take concepts in the Bible, and you'll just, when you come to them, if you'll go to all the places in the Bible where God talks about that, you'll find that God is going to take His Word and use it to reveal His truth to you so that we know what He's talking about. And so last week what we began to do is just go to the few other places in the Bible where it talks about Leviathan, and we found out something just absolutely incredible. Whatever this beast is, according to Psalm 74 and verse 14, we found that he has more than one head, and according to Isaiah 27 and verse 1, we found that he's due to show up just prior to the second coming of Christ in that day. And when he shows up just prior to the second coming of Christ, he shows up as a dragon who is likened to a serpent. And I mean, folks, listen. If you had ever in your life ever read Revelation chapter 12, you know immediately who Leviathan is because Revelation chapter 12 tells you that he is a seven-headed dragon that's likened to a serpent who's going to make quite an appearance on this planet just prior to the second coming of Christ, and he's going to come as a dragon, and of course he's none other than Satan himself. And listen, if you let the Bible make that identification of Leviathan for you, I'm telling you, it's just absolutely amazing what you can learn about Satan in Job chapter 41. And let's take a few minutes to do this. Look at verse 1. God asks, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? And you see, that's why a lot of people think that he's, you know, a whale or a crocodile or just some kind of sea creature because verse 1 is describing things that you do when you fish, okay? Verse 2, canst thou put a hook into his nose, kind of like we put a ring in the nose of a bull, or bore his jaw through with a thorn, kind of like a, a, a stringer that you use when you, when you catch fish. I don't catch fish, fish, so I don't use his stringer. But you know how this is where you run the line down through his lower jaw and, uh, you know, or his gills or whatever. 
That's what he's talking about. So listen, if all we had to go on was verses 1 and 2, we might conclude that this is just some kind of sea creature. But listen, we've got more than those first two verses. I mean, we, verse 3 would let you know immediately that you're dealing with something that's a whole lot bigger than that because God asks in verse 3, Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? You ever had a crocodile do that to you? You ever had a whale do that to you? An elephant, hippopotamus, any of them ever done anything like that to you? But let me ask you this. Is there anybody here that can think of some kind of beast that will make supplications unto you and will speak soft words unto you? You know what? I bet you Eve could tell you about some beast that could do that. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 4, the Colossians could tell you about someone trying to use enticing words to beguile them. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 18, Paul warned the Romans about someone coming to them, listen, with good words and fair speeches. He warned the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 6 to watch out for being deceived with vain words. And just let me ask you, have you ever in your life had something that the Bible describes as a beast use good words enticing words and fair speeches which turned out to be nothing more than vain words to try to beguile you and seduce you Frank asked just a few minutes ago how many of you used to be involved in a religion where you were involved in all kinds of human works you know what that was good words and fair speeches somebody making supplications unto you with soft words verse 4 Will he make a covenant with thee? Well, we, we've seen in our study of the book of Revelation that according to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, Daniel chapter 11 and verse 32, Isaiah 28 and verse 18, along with a whole host of others, we have found that he will make a covenant with Israel at the beginning of the tribulation period. He's not going to keep it, but he most definitely makes a covenant with them verse 4 goes on wilt thou take him for a servant forever now listen there are some pretty major whales and, and great sea animals that we've learned through the years to be able to take captive and we, we put them in the, these great big aquariums you know like they have in sea world and places like that and you know what they get in there and guys they ain't ever coming out they're the servants forever unless of course they decide to let them out but God's saying here, you're going to do that with this beast? You're going to do that with Leviathan? Now God will. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2 says, listen to it, that God will lay hold of the dragon, here it is again, that old serpent, 
which is the devil and Satan, and bind him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the one thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loose for a season. God's going to let him out of this bottomless aquarium at the end of that thousand years. And it'll be for just a short while. And then Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 says that God will cast the devil into the lake of fire and brimstone. Quite the aquarium, y'all. And there, listen, he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. God will take him and he'll make him his servant forever and ever. So God asked Job in Job 41.4 and God asked us, Will you take him for his servant forever? Not on your life, but buddy, God will. And it's the same basic thought in verse 5. Wilt thou play with him as with a bird? You can put birds in, in, in cages, but are you going to do that with Leviathan, God says? No way. But again, God will. Or, or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? No, but check it out. Revelation chapter 20 is all about God doing that with Leviathan for those who make up his virgin bride or his maidens. Verse 6. Shall the companions make a banquet of him? I mean, you're you going to kill him and serve him for dinner? No, but again, God will. Psalm 74 and verse 14 says, Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan to pieces and gavest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. And what we'll see in our study next time is that these people inhabiting the wilderness will be the Jews in the last half of the tribulation and God's going to feed them then just the way that he fed them when they were in the wilderness back in the book of Exodus. This time, he's feeding them something different. Leviathan head. And it scrummed a little umptious, y'all. Verse 7. Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons or his head with fish spears? You're going to try to do battle with him with those kind of weapons? Verse 8, lay thine hand upon him. Remember the battle, do no more. In other words, you might try that once, but buddy, he's going to teach you a lesson you'll never forget. And you might try to come at him once like that, but you'll never come at it like that again. You remember what it says in the book of Jude, verse 9? It says, yet Michael... The archangel, when contending with the devil, dared not bring a railing accusation against him, but said, Ooh, buddy, the Lord rebuke thee. The old buddy is put in there by me. He says, the Lord rebuke, rebuke thee. You see, that's the way you've got to do battle with Leviathan. You can't use barbed irons and fish spears on him because he's too powerful for those. Look at verse 15. His scales are his pride. And you know what? If you couldn't figure out who Leviathan was by the time you got to this point in the chapter, I mean, surely verse 15 would have given it away. Because you see, it was his pride that turned him into Leviathan as opposed to the anointed cherub that covered in the first place. It was his pride. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne. I will sit upon the mount. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. It was his pride. And look at verse 34. He beholdeth all high things. He is a king over all the children 
of pride. And you know what this is, folks? It's Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11. He is the head of all principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness where? In high places. And remember in Matthew chapter 4, where Leviathan took Jesus up into a, what kind of mountain? A high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world. He is a king over all of the worldly kingdoms. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 says he is the God of this world. And this world, folks, is made up of the children of pride because John chapter 8 and verse 44 says that the children of this world are the children of the devil. And God's letting us know here that this Leviathan, Satan, he is the epitome of pride. Look at verse 15 again. His scales are his pride. You see, that's what makes him so, so hard to contend with. Look at it. They're, they're shut up together as with a close seal. Verse 16. One is so near to another. Th th we're talking about his scales of pride. I mean, these scales of pride, God says, are so compacted together that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together. They cannot be sundered. You cannot pierce through them. His pride has just glued them together. So you can't battle with Him. With barbed irons, He says, and, and fish spears. Drop down to verse 26. The sword of Him that layeth at Him cannot hold. The spear, the dart, nor the habergen. He esteemeth iron as straw and brass as rotten wood. I mean, you come at him with those kind of things and he just breaks them in two like they're nothing. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned with him into stubble. You put those rocks in your slingshot and you try to throw those at him. He just takes the, your, your stones and just and crushes them to powder right in your face. Verse 29, darts are countered as stubble. He does the same, same thing with him. Just grabs him right out of the sky. And you know what? You know, listen, you know what God's trying to get us to see here? I mean, are, are you picking up on it? What he's trying to get us to see is that if you come to Satan using carnal weapons, you can't get anywhere. What he's saying is he'll laugh. In your stinking face, because 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4 says, the weapons of our warfare are not what? They're not carnal, but mighty through God. You know what God's trying to get you to see? You better use the weapon God gave you for this warfare with Leviathan. Hebrews chapter 4, 12 says that that weapon is the Word of God, which is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. In Job 41, 17, look at it. says that carnal weapons can't sunder his scales. Hebrews 4, 12 says that the Word of God pierces even to the dividing... What's the next word? Asunder of soul and spirit. Listen, that's the kind of weaponry that you better use against Leviathan because what he's trying to get you to see is it's a spiritual warfare and you better use a spiritual sword in this spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 says, The sword of the Spirit, which is the 
Word of God. And you know what? Christians have heard that all their life. But they've never quite gotten it into their heads that the Word of God is our only weapon in the spiritual warfare that we face every single day, guys. Listen, we don't go to this book to be spiritual. Now, some of you, that's why you go every day, because this is what spiritual people do. They read the Bible every day, and I want to be spiritual. Listen, what we're seeing here in Job chapter 41, we don't go to this book to be spiritual. We go to this book for survival. It's the only way you're going to stand. It's the only, only, only way. And some of you wonder why you can't seem to live in victory in your Christian life. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to dog you. But now listen. It's no deep, dark secret in light of what we're seeing here this morning. You're trying to use barbed irons, fish spears, darts, and rocks, and the devil laughs in your stinking face. He breaks those things like they're toothpicks. He, he crushes them like aluminum cans. You cannot come to him with weapons like that. The only weapon that phases him, folks, is the sharp, two-edged sword that you're holding in your hands right now. Now, now. now, let me ask you something. If you looked out your window tomorrow morning before you go to work, and you looked out in your window, and you saw out there in your front yard, you saw a monstrous, seven-headed dragon in your front yard. And, and look at verse 19 for just a sec. You look out there, and out of his mouth go burning lamps and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils go with smoke, like with mine this morning, as of a seething or boiling pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. I mean, you, you look out there, and he breathes, and he catches your trees and your bushes and your front porch on fire, okay? You're just going to cruise out your front yard, go off to work. You're going to be so absolutely, totally freaked. You ain't going nowhere, man. And yet some of you spiritually, spiritually, day after day after day, you walk out there. And listen, folks, whether you see him or not, he's there as a fire-breathing dragon. And some of you wonder why you just keep getting burnt in your Christian life. No pun intended. You know what? Some of you this morning, man, you need to let God open your eyes this morning to who our enemy really is and what your enemy that you face every single day is really like. If you look at the last part of verse 9, shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? You know what God's saying? He's saying, if you could see Leviathan for who he really is, man, it would literally cause you, just if you looked at him, it would cause you to pass out. You'd be cast down just at the sight of him. And there's a lot of Christians on this planet, and a lot of non-Christians who walk around like they're bad, walking around like nothing phases them, walking around like they're all that in a bag of chips. Look at verse 10. None, none, none. None is so fierce that dare jive with him. None so fierce that they dare stir him up. And I love the last part of verse 10. God says, Who then is able 
to stand before me. You know what will freak your head out a whole lot more than standing in the presence of a huge, seven-headed, fire-breathing, smoke-blowing dragon? Standing in the presence of the holy God of the Bible. You talk about getting freaked out. You, you don't know nothing. E Ezekiel stood in the presence of the holy God of the Bible. In Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 28, he says, And when I did, I was cast down. I fell at his feet. Isaiah, in chapter 6 of, I, of his book, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, he said, Oh my goodness, I saw the Lord and I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. In other words, I feel like I'm disintegrating. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17, John is caught up and he sees the Lord and he said, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. The same guy who when he walked with Jesus on the earth laid his head on his breast because they were so intimate he saw him in all of his revealed power and glory and he said I didn't want to even inhale or exhale I fell at his feet as dead because he was so absolutely incredible and God's saying in verse 10 listen if there's nobody who can stand in the presence of Leviathan without passing out and nobody would provoke him then God says how in the world do you think for a second that you could stand in my presence when I created Leviathan he's just a created being I'm the creator Oh, listen, folks, don't ever run the risk of getting afraid of something that's created. You better live in fear of the creator of the universe. Unless you've come into a personal relationship with him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that this, this beast is just absolutely unbelievable. But verse 9 says, Behold, the hope of him is in vain. You see, now, now listen, he keeps hoping. He keeps hoping that somehow he's going to get back to ground where his throne once was on this planet. And he keeps hoping that somehow, in, in light of what the book of Revelation says, he just keeps hoping that somehow he's going to keep the Lord Jesus Christ from ruling there. He's got that hope, God says, but it's all in vain. Listen. Leviathan is bad. He's badder than anything you ever imagined in your life, but he's not that bad. He's not bad enough for God. He's, he's powerful, man, but he's not more powerful than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's extremely powerful, but listen, he's not all-powerful. He's not omnipotent. And old buddy, you better understand, man, that he is fast. He is extremely fast, but understand, he's not omnipresent. And buddy, I mean, he is smart. He is more smart than all of the human beings on this planet combined, all of the minds in the world. He is extremely smart, but he's not omniscient. God says, he's so incredible, but he ain't jack in my presence. The hope of him is in vain. But now listen. God wanted to make sure that we understand. Drop down to verse 33. He wanted to make sure that we didn't miss this. 
that upon earth there is not his like. And you see, this is the verse that Martin Luther was quoting in that song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, when he says, talking about Satan, On earth is not his equal. It's right there. Verse 33. Probably the only guy in the last 400 years to be able to recognize who Leviathan was is some guy back there in the 16th century saying, Oh, buddy, that Leviathan. <laughs> we know who that is. That's Satan. And on earth there is not his like. And look at the last part of verse 33. Who is made without fear. Listen. He is not afraid of you. And he's not afraid of anybody else. I mean, check it out, y'all. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 3, he even had the audacity to look the Lord Jesus Christ in the face and say to him, If thou be the Son of God, when he knows full well who he is, and he knows full well his power, and he knows full well his own end, and yet he has the audacity because he has absolutely no fear. He gets in his face and says, now, if you be the son of God. And you know what he's like? He's kind of like one of those little guys in the bar that when he gets drunk has no fear of anyone or anything. And he thinks that he's going to take on, you know, some guy three times his size or take on the whole room of people. Satan's just like that. He's so full of pride. He has no fear of anything. But now listen, you've got to remember. You're never going to see Satan like this. This is the way God sees him. That's what Job 41 is all about. This is the way that God sees him. And like I said, Satan wants to make sure that you don't see him like this. Because you see, when you begin to see him like this, all of a sudden, Monday morning is a whole different animal, isn't it? If you understand that that's who you've got to contend with. So he wants to make sure that you don't understand this. He doesn't want you to know that what God has given to us in Job 41 is the most exhaustive account in the entire Bible of who Satan really is and how he operates. And yet we're living at a time, guys, when most Christians on this planet think that Leviathan is a whale, a whirlpool, a crocodile, an elephant, an hippopotamus, or an unknown sea creature. So... What really does Job 41 have anything to do with me? And that's exactly where Satan wants. I would say he's done a pretty good job of keeping himself from being identified, wouldn't you? But look at what God says in verse 12. I will not conceal. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power nor his comely proportion. I won't conceal him from you. Rather, I'll reveal him to you. And what we've seen this morning, by just using the method that God told us that he would use to reveal his word to us, he's done that, hasn't he? He's a lot... I mean, hey guys, y'all know I ain't this smart to be able to put all this together. You know, make it all kind of fit to where every cross-reference will take you right back to Job 41 and the working of Satan. But you see, understand, you'd never see Satan like this. You'd never see it if God didn't reveal it for you here. Because listen, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14 says that Leviathan or Satan 
transforms himself into an angel of light. Don't, don't ever underestimate his power, guys. He has transforming power. Did your kids, did, did they have transformers? About I don't even know if they still got them, but like about, you know, 15 or so years or so ago, these transformers came out, and there's these little, little race cars, you know? And here, they, man, these kids start working this thing. They're transformers, and they transform them into this, this beast. I mean, a second ago, it was this little car, and you rolling around. They do a few little things on this thing, and all of a sudden, you got to understand, he's got the power to transform himself. And you see, that's why nobody can find him or identify his, his working in history or in the world around us or in their own lives for that matter. But listen, he's there, folks. A seven-headed, fire-breathing, smoke-blowing dragon who is bent on destroying you and devouring you and halting the purpose of God through you. But you see, he transforms himself into an angel of light. Listen, he transforms himself. This is, we've seen in Job 41. This is who he is. This is how God sees him. But he transforms himself into something good. Something moral. And something godly. And something spiritual. And something Christian. And that's why most Christians can't find him and don't see him in operation around them. And that's why God asked in verse 13, Who? I'll conceal him, but who? I won't conceal him. I'll reveal him to you. But who can discover the face of his garment? In verse 14, Who can open the doors of his face? And you remember back in the... The olden days, they'd have the, the plays, and here comes Act 1. They got all the scenery up there. And the, the actors come out in their costume. They're holding a door in front of their face. They're holding a mask on a stick. Remember you seeing this and studying this stuff in school with Shakespeare and all that deal? So they, they, they establish the storyline. They get all of the scenery up there. Here comes Act 2. Okay, curtain falls. They change the scenery, and here comes the same group of people. But they're establishing the storyline a little bit further. Now they come out, and they're in different costumes and they got a different door in front of their face it's the same people it's just different clothes and it's just a different mask and that's exactly what God is telling you that Satan does he keeps changing his costume and he keeps changing his mask depending upon what the situation and the times in history call for and that's why nobody can find him listen he's got a wardrobe full of clothes and he's got all kinds of different masks but behind the clothes and the mask if you could see it the way that God sees it and you better because God says I won't conceal it I'm going to give you everything that you need to be able to find him and when we let God allow us to see behind the clothes and behind the mask what we see is though we, see, we can see all the trappings that he's got what we see is a red bodied fire breathing seven headed smoke blowing dragon and we're not fooled a bit we're able to see him as he comes right down through history we know right where he's been we know right what he's done and we're able to see him today we see where he's going and we see all the things that he's trying to pull off in 1998 in the name of here it is in the name of 
Christianity. And for you folks, listen, for you folks who are newer to our fellowship, before you get too awful excited about, oh my goodness, this is incredible, man, to, to go over here and see how Satan really operates. Now, now let me just warn you that when you start identifying his working today and you tell other Christians who it is that's actually behind the mask and the clothing of a lot of what is going on today in the name of Jesus, what you're going to find, guys, is they're not going to celebrate with you. They're not going to pat you on the back and tell you, wow, that's incredibly insightful, and man, I really appreciate that. What you're going to find out is the Christian world can become very unchristian and very unloving when you start to tell them who's behind the mask and the clothes in that little Christian group over there. You know what? It, it is weird, man. I mean, we're living at a time in Christianity, guys, when Christians will tolerate just about any kind of sin in another believer without confronting it or caring one stinking thing about it, they'll go over and pat them on the back. Well, that'd be all right. Well, well, none of us are perfect and all kind of trash like that. They'll tolerate any kind of false doctrine in the world, but I'll tell you what they won't accommodate. They won't accommodate somebody that does what the Bible says. Somebody who, according to Titus chapter 1 and verse 9, is holding tenaciously to sound doctrine. They won't tolerate that, y'all. You need to understand that. They won't, they won't tolerate somebody that according to Jude chapter 1 and verse 3, somebody who is earnestly contending for the faith, they won't tolerate somebody that according to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2 is identifying false apostles on this planet and calling them liars. They'll accommodate anything. But they won't accommodate somebody that's doing what the Bible says. So before you get real psyched on identifying the working of Satan around you, understand there's a price to pay for it. And we've been paying for it for a few years around here, haven't we? Hello? I'm telling you, if you earnestly contend for the faith and you call Satan, Satan where you seem, behind the clothes and the mask, it's not all of what it's cracked up to be. You better be ready to pay the price and be called all kinds of... And you know what? They'll call you everything but a Christian. They'll tell you how unchristian you are because who are you to judge somebody else? When you got a book that says, I won't conceal him. But now let me quickly take you over to a passage that, that talks about all of that. God shows us his working in, in the church. Wow! I haven't looked at my watch in a little while, y'all. That was what the wow was about. <laughs> you know what I've become? A one-headed, fire-breathing, smoke-blowing dragon this morning, haven't I? <laughs> I didn't say a fat-headed one. I said one-headed. <laughs> Look at what he says here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But Paul is writing to these people. And he says in verse 3, now these are people he's won to Christ. He says, I fear, lest, uh, no, let's go verse 2. He says, I'm jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband. And who's that? The Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, when you enter into a personal relationship with the Son of God, he likens it to a marriage relationship. Where he is the husband, we have become, according to Revelation 21, the bride of Christ. And he says that you're a spouse, you're engaged right now. The marriage hasn't been consummated. That's going to happen at the rapture where we'll then celebrate the marriage 
supper of the Lamb. The marriage will be consummated at that point. Right now, all of us that know Christ, we're engaged to Him. What He's looking for is for when He comes for us in the clouds, He wants to find us, just like it says in verse 2, a chaste virgin. He's wanting us to be spiritually pure when we come before Him. But he says in verse 3, But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Watch this now, verse 4. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, you might well bear with him. He says, you know what? Here I am. I'm, I'm the one that led you guys to Christ. I'm the one that taught you all the doctrine that you know. I'm the one that invested in your life. And you guys, and if you read the context in the, the chapters prior to this, he, the, the, these people are constantly contending him and saying, who does he really think he is? Does he, is he really an apostle? And all of this kind of trash. And he says, this is mind-boggling. He says, if somebody else comes along and they're preaching some kind of trash, and you might well accept them, everything that I tell you, you guys are saying, oh, should we really believe this? And he says, what I'm afraid of is that what's going to happen is that the same thing that Satan did with Eve when he beguiled her and he seduced her, I'm afraid that spiritually somebody's going to come doing that to you. And I want you to notice the package that it comes in in verse 4. Listen, oh my goodness, listen, especially you folks who are new that have never heard these kind of things. Would you please listen, everybody in the room, some of you have been around here for years, please use this as a big, 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 big reminder. You know what he's saying? Watch out for people. Now listen, who are preaching... Jesus. See, most Christians on this planet are just desperately afraid that Satan is going to be coming out and try to pull them into a satanic cult. He says, mm -mm. don't concern yourself with that. I mean, come on. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that Satan. Watch out for some guy that preaches Jesus, that talks about receiving the Spirit, and he's preaching the gospel. Watch out for him. But would you notice, okay, you got Jesus receiving spirit and the gospel. But in front of every one of those words in verse 4, there's a key word. What is it? Another. They ain't going to come and say, I'm going to preach to you another Jesus and talk to you about receiving another spirit and, and give you another gospel. No. It's the same terminology. Jesus, receive the Spirit today. Come down here and receive the Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Ghost, the power of God. Watch out for that because you're going to get yourself down there and check it out. It's going to be another Spirit that you didn't receive the day that you accepted Jesus Christ into your life. Another Jesus! He goes by the name Jesus, but it's not Him! Another Jesus! Another Spirit! It's another Gospel. It ain't one that'll save you. Who are these people? Oh my goodness, who are they? Look at verse 13. For such are false apostles. Watch out for anybody claiming apostleship today, y'all. Or having the gifts that were given to apostles. And if that ticks some of you off, deal with it. False apostles, deceitful workers, 
transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, I mean, come on, this is no big trip, right? For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Now watch verse 15. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. Listen, did you know that Satan today in 1998 has ministers who preach Jesus Receive the Spirit and receive the Gospel. But you got to watch it, he's saying, because it's a transformation. You better get you a sharp two-edged sword that you hold tenaciously to and don't ever get to the place to where you listen to anybody and just because they wave a Bible in their hand just like I've done all morning, don't ever get to the place to where you accept what they say. And I'm talking about me. We've been, listen, we've been together for 15 years now, and some of you said, I've heard you say it. You know, I, I really, you know, I had never heard that before, but you know, I know you live a godly life, and I know you study the Word of God, and so, man, I, that was great. Oh my goodness, guys. Please do not discourage me like that. Be the... <laughs> I think I got a bloody nose, y'all. Listen, if, if this thing ever lets loose, we could all be in trouble, man. You talking about blood coming up to the horse's bridle, man. Woo! <laughs> now listen, I don't care if we stay together for the next 30 years and every Sunday you get nothing but sound doctrine. Don't ever come into this room and get to the place to where you just accept everything that you hear. You be like the Bereans, what it says in Acts chapter 17. Be like the Bereans. Receive the word every time you come with all readiness of mind. Be ready to receive from God, but get yourself home. Get in the book and see if these things be so. Amen. Now, I'm telling you, I, I, I'm talking about me. I'm talking about Frank. I'm talking about Bob. I'm talking about Joe. I'm especially talking about Joe. <laughs> Because he ain't here this morning. <laughs> Sorry, scoundrel. You know what? That's what's going on in 1998. It just comes in the slickest package you ever imagined. But if you let the Bible be the Bible, what you'd see is a seven-headed, fire-breathing, smoke-blowing dragon up there, and it would tick you off. And you'd identify him. And now listen. In the midst of getting ticked off and identifying him, remember, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle, apt to teach. If we're ever going to get people to hear who's behind the mask and behind the clothes, you're going to have to love them. You have to come alongside of them. Work with them, trying to get them to see it. You go to work tomorrow, say, yeah, well, we learned about your operation yesterday, and we learned who's behind it. <laughs> you, you, you better have just a, a little more spiritual tact than that if you're going to ever be heard on, on this thing. But listen, some of us get blown away every single day because we don't understand what we're dealing with. So, I, you know what, we're, we're not going to get to this next point again. I don't care myself. 
really what I care about is that we've used today this little window in Revelation chapter 12 to look out and see who our enemy really is and let's just get ourselves all put back together here and let's remind ourselves what we're dealing with every day and let's let's get our our spiritual eyes and ears open all around us and see what's really happening in 1998 so that we don't get ourselves duped so that when we stand before him in the clouds we come as a chaste virgin who hasn't crawled in the sack with Satan and his ministers and defiled ourselves with that spiritual trash that goes on in the name of Jesus now if you're here this morning and you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior let me just tell you there's a major battle going on, and I hope that's more than apparent to you right now. There's only one way that you stand in this battle. It's by receiving Jesus Christ and Him alone as the full payment of your sin. Your sin this morning separates you from a holy God. And the Bible says that you're condemned already. The condemnation is already on you. You're separated from God. You have no fellowship. So God says, I don't want it to be like that. I'm going to come to this planet. I'm going to take your sin so that you don't have to remain separated from me. But until you call upon the name of his son and him alone to forgive you of your sin and trust that only for your salvation, it's not yours. But it can be yours today by simply calling upon his name. Our pastors are going to be at the front of this, this room as we're dismissed at either door. We're here for you. Man, we want you today to be able to enter into a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That can happen for you today. And I pray that you'll let God do that. Let's, let's stand with our heads bowed. And Frank, why don't you come and dismiss us in prayer if you would. You know what? As Oh, you know what? Come on down here. I, I forgot about one, one little thing here. This is a blessed, blessed day. We've got a, a couple, Chris and Thelma Hirschberger, who have received uh, the most precious gift other than the gift of salvation in their life. This is little Emily. Hey, sweetie. <laughs> what a precious kid. And uh, they have received this, this blessing from God. Yeah, preach it, girl. Go for it. Tell them what the score really is now. They receive this, this precious gift from God. And they, they recognize that the responsibility that was given to them according to Ephesians chapter 6 is to take this little girl and to train her and to bring her up, listen, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And they're coming today realizing that that task is a whole lot bigger than them and they're coming and they're coveting the prayers of these hundreds and hundreds of people for God to help them to carry out his command in this little girl's life what they want to see is that at the earliest possible age this little girl will understand who Christ is because they've seen him lived out in their mom and dad and they want her to receive the Lord Jesus Christ 
so that she can have eternal life. This is what, what we're doing here today. We're going to pray with this couple. This is, this is not going to get this baby to heaven or, or anything like that. We believe that, that a baby at this age is safe in Jesus until she would come to the place to where she understands who Jesus is and then would need to be saved. But at this point, we believe the, the Bible teaches without any reservation whatsoever that because she does not have the knowledge between good and evil, she would spend eternity with the Lord. But what they're doing today is they're saying, guys, we need you. We need our church family, all of us, to help us in this task of, of training this child. And so let's join our hearts together and let's, let's pray for Emily and for these parents. We call this baby dedication. Really what it is, it's parent dedication. These parents are coming and dedicating themselves publicly to what the scripture says about training this little girl. Let's pray together. And Lord, I, I want to thank you today for this, this couple and your working in their lives that you brought them to the place of salvation in their life. And I thank you that you brought them to the place of, of surrender to your lordship. I, I thank you that they desire to train this little girl in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And Lord, I, I, our prayer is that every single day of her life she would see in her mom and her dad a perfect example of what it is to see somebody who is allowing Jesus Christ to rule and reign in their lives. And we pray that at the earliest possible age she'll call upon your name and receive you as her Savior. And she will walk in obedience to you and glorify you on this earth. And if you tarry, that she too will be used to reproduce sons and, and daughters of God on the, on the earth. So Lord, help Chris and Thelma. And I pray that you would allow us as a church family to undergird them and support them in this monumental task of training our children to be like you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'm going to ask Chris and Thelma to stay down here. Why don't you come down and let them know that you'll be praying for them. You folks who are guests with us, I'd love to meet you. I'll be out in the foyer. Uh, our service tonight begins at 6 o'clock. Go into the book of Judges with Pastor Frank. We'll see you then.